Seth Richardson's here, which means we'll be talking about the Cleveland mayor's race with less than a week to go before primary day. It is this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with Seth Richardson and Layla Atassi and Lisa Garvin. Happy Thursday, all. We have hot stuff to talk about today. Yes, we do. It's going to be great. We almost well, talked too much about it before we started recording. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but I think we have the gift of gab on these topics. We'll make sure it's interesting. Let's start. Fully a week after violating the Ohio Constitution, they swore to support the seven members of the Ohio Redistricting Commission, including Governor Mike DeWine, finally announced their plans Wednesday. So when do we get to see the legislative district maps they've been working on in secret for weeks? Lisa Garvin, this is one where they just decided to thwart the law entirely and do whatever they want. But finally, today, we're going to get a glimpse. Hallelujah. I mean, we've been waiting for a while. The Democrats map has been out for at least a week. Um, We will get to see the commissions the Republican commission members map at 10 o'clock today and then later this afternoon there will be a formal vote to formally introduce the map and then they're cramming four meetings between now and the 15th which is uh, Wednesday and you know for the commission to go over the maps and have public testimony which kind of bothers me I mean if we're talking meetings on Sunday and Monday I don't know if those are the public meetings or not, but basically they're giving the public very little time to weigh in. Um, uh, Ohio Senate President Matt Huffman is confident that they will have a 10-year map, and he wants a 10-year map, but I think there are people in his party that may feel otherwise. And here's my question. I I feel like the GOP wants a four-year map because that would get them through the midterms in 2024. What say y'all? Yeah, I I think their goal is a four-year map. The way they've worked in secret, the way they've kept the Democrats out of the conversation. You know, there's an undercurrent in the Democratic Party that that Amelia Sykes is working a deal that she'll get uh, an easy-to-win congressional district, which I, I have a hard time believing she'd do that. She's never done anything like that in her career. She's always been honorable. The, the, but I don't see, unless Amelia Sykes and Vernon Sykes, the two Democrats that are on this this commission have been included in these conversations all along and it does not appear they have they're not going to vote for this they're i think you're right they're going with the four-year maps what i hope happens if they do that is that the people that sought to put the redistricting system on the ballot last time and and caved when the legislature came up with this bogus plan will will put it back on so that in four years somebody else has drawn the maps not these guys who have violated their constitutional duties I feel like the whole process has been tainted. I mean, you know, the, most of the commission members have been doing this in secret. I mean, they, they shot down the Democratic map and, you know, not even and they the Democrats offered it. The Sykeses offered it as, you know, a baseline for discussion. And the GOP members are like, yeah, we don't like it at all. So I'm actually really curious to see what their map looks like. Are we going to have snakes and ducks or or what? Well, I think that that would be hard to do because they're not allowed to do that. But I'm with you. And they're leaving us with less than a week to do analysis of it and really look at it, look at it closely. I the thing that throws me is that there is really no outrage that that people in Ohio just seem so numb to government misbehavior that nobody's saying anything. I mean, all of the Republicans who are in the legislature that voted for HB six, 
got reelected after that scandal came out. And I just wonder what it would take for voters in Ohio to get so outraged they throw all the bums out like they did after Coingate back in the, what, 2000s when there was a huge sweep of everybody who was in office. There was outrage then. Seth Richardson, what do you think it's going to take to bring that kind of outrage about? You know, I've been wondering that really since I moved here because you know, <laughs> um, I, I honestly thought, uh, you know, when, when the first elections that I covered here were, you know, the ECOT scandal was going on, right? And I always thought that that was a little too complicated to really kind of distill into a message. Uh, when HB6 broke, I, I, I really thought that that would be something that galvanized a lot of people because it's really easy to explain, right? You had... Uh, people in government were taking bribes from an energy company. It's super easy. You can explain it in 10 seconds. Um, but that didn't seem to be the case. Now, part of that might be because, you know, the presidential election was going on and kind of dwarfed everything. But uh, yeah, I, I honestly, I just don't know. Um, I, I do think that if, uh, you know, the there are some shenanigans with this redistricting process, I think it's a pretty high likelihood that uh, we'll, we'll see another uh, redistricting ballot initiative you know, sooner rather than later, though. We, well, I hope so, because this this obviously didn't work. DeWine, all of them, they just threw out their constitutional duties. That used to matter. I mean, that used to matter a lot. And nobody seems to, to, to be that upset about it. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When it comes to bold steps to contain the coronavirus, the Cuyahoga County judges have done it. Prosecutor Michael O'Malley has done it. Cuyahoga executive Armin Budish refuses. Leila Atassi, what are we talking about? We're talking about issuing a vaccine mandate. Yesterday, we heard that Prosecutor Mike O'Malley had told his staff that they would be joining the county judge's staff in requiring everyone to get vaccinated by October 15th. But for thousands of other county employees... County Executive Armin Budish says he's not ready to require them to get vaccinated. Instead, he's going to try these incentives. He's offering $100 to anyone who gets the shot. He wants to exhaust the value of that approach before considering a mandate. The county doesn't have a headcount of how many workers are unvaccinated at this point. But, I mean, my feeling on incentives is that if you've gone this far without getting the vaccine, 100 bucks isn't going to change your mind. It means Vaximillion didn't sway you or free Krispy Kremes didn't sway you. <laughs> so I don't blame the judges and prosecutor for deciding that enough is enough. If the state is struggling to reach herd immunity, at least they'll achieve it in their own workforce. I wish every employer would consider that approach. And I'm stunned that Armin Budish is lagging and keeps, you know, just pussyfooting really? around yeah. the issue with this yeah. the, these incentives. You're stunned by decision-making by <laughs> Armin Budish after all the conversations all right. <laughs> we have about his lame decision-making? I'm not stunned at all. Uh, Look, yeah. I, the, the thing is, when people are working at home, it's not as big a deal. But when you have people in the office, as many of these do, it's your duty to provide a safe workplace. And if there are people coming in who are not vaccinated, that's a less safe workplace. I agree. I I personally think every employer should should apply a mandate. This is I, uh, I we are reaching just the the fever pitch of of a new wave of COVID, and it is time to bring the axe down on people who are who are subscribing to these crazy conspiracy theories about the about the vaccine. And uh, that's enough. If you don't, 
there has to be some kind of, of uh, you know, just stronger force at play here, something stronger than, than you know, the conspiracy theories. And I think I, the threat of losing your job is what it might take. I should point out for disclosure, we do not have such a policy, but we are still mostly working at home. So there isn't the idea that That's we're true. bringing. I don't think anyone goes into people. our, into our office. I, I, yeah. I mean, but if you, if you imposed one, I'd be in full support of that. I, I really would. I think, you know, and I think most of our, most of our staff would. I think that, that if we get to a point where we're, we're heading back into the office, there'll be a much broader conversation about it. I just don't know when that day is. I'm almost, I think I'll be surprised if it's before the end of the year. I think the Delta variant's going to be, scaring everybody throughout the fall. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We've never seen the kind of dark money funded anonymous attack ads we've seen in the mayor's race in Cleveland this year. Do we know who is behind it and which candidates are getting the support of these snipers who are firing such specious shots from in hiding? Seth Richardson, these are people that refuse to put their names and faces behind the attacks they're making on candidates. It's really a question of character. Yeah, I always found uh, dark money or just, you know, kind of skirting any kind of uh, disclosure rules to be a little cowardly, in my opinion, just because, you know, if you're going to take a shot, take a shot, right? That's that's kind of the name of the game of American politics. But uh, yeah, I mean, we're seeing all kinds of dark money in this race, obviously. And, you know, to, to be clear, there is a bit of a difference between, you know, technical dark money, right? We will learn some of these donors. It's just that uh, we will not learn until January. And by then, the uh, mayor's race will be long over. So for, well, for the time, yeah, just just for the right. I mean, what I'm calling dark money is spending where there's no sunshine. Yeah. So, so without sunshine, it's in the dark. Yeah. They're hiding in cowardice and taking cheap shots. For, for for all intents and purposes, during the election, it's dark money. We're not going to know exactly where it's coming from unless they come out and say, "Hey, this is I gave this money or whatever," which they're not going to do. That's the whole point of these. Uh, you know, these organizations, these independent expenditure committees. Um, so no, we don't know exactly where, I mean, we can, we can piece together some things just based on disclosures, right? Um, we know that Citizens for Change has obviously been doing attack ads against um, Dennis Kucinich and most recently Justin Bibb, um, kind of, you know, in a pretty uh, transparent attempt to uh, uh, kind of uh, bolster Kevin Kelly's candidacy. Um, but the, but the interesting thing is, you know, a lot of people have really harped on this citizens for change group, but there, you know, there's dark money all over this race. Pretty much every candidate has been touched by it in one way or another. Um, you know, Justin Bibb himself is getting, uh, you know, some support from conservation Ohio. And when I say that the candidate is getting support again, want to be clear, they're not colluding or anything like that. It's just that the those campaigns are coming in to help their preferred candidate. Uh, you know, Tony George was out with uh, um, with a mailer this weekend, kind of disguised as a uh, a community newspaper voter guide, right? That looked very official. I actually thought it was, you know, in terms of uh, being a clever mailer, I, I thought that it was it was clever. I'm not sure that it's necessarily uh, good to uh, disguise anything as a newspaper, but you know, in terms of efficacy, I could see it possibly working. Uh, you know, you got SEIU who's also been in the race for quite a while, and they've actually been attacking Kevin Kelly. Um, you know, they're they're spending six figures, you know, boosting up Sandra Williams, but also attacking Kevin Kelly. So it's really you know, really all least, over this race. But in that case, you know who it is. I mean, it's SEIU, right? They're 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 not hiding who they are. 
Well, you know that SEIU, it, it is the SEIU pack. You don't necessarily know the donors, though, right? Because no, we they, don't know the donors, but yeah. at least you know but you can, where— you can make an assumption about where it's coming from. Where right? it's uh, coming from. Yeah. Look, we, we did an endorsement. We endorsed Justin Bibb, and we also spoke very strongly, our editorial board, that you're not a part of, Seth, just for disclosure, that that people should not vote for Dennis Kucinich. But everybody knows who we are. I mean, it's it's the plain deer in Cleveland.com, and the members of the editorial board are listed all the time. So— That's what I'm talking about. If you're going to make a a statement, make a claim against a candidate, who are you who come out from if if you believe in what you're saying and they don't because it's garbage. We've all every reporter in town and editors and everybody else has been fed this stuff, checked it out and found it to be nonsense. So what do they do? They send out anonymous mailers trying to just win over a few votes. Look, Kevin Kelly screwed up yesterday. There was an email from his campaign that went to, to you and to me and to Layla and a couple of others in our newsroom about him getting endorsement of something called GPAC, which I've never heard of before, but, but apparently it's according to the press release, some black leaders. Kevin Kelly was on the mailing list and he replied to all. He said, what else can we do with this? This and Jackson will get me to my 18%, which I know, Seth, you and I disagree on what he's talking about there. I think he's looking for 18% of the black vote that he's that he's trying to count it that coldly and with that much calculation. You think it's more of the 18% of the total vote. I, I Well, the more I thought about it, I think it actually could be either, right? Because when you think about splitting up the vote in so many ways and given the demographics of the city, you know, 18% of the black vote it can probably equate to 18% of the total vote as well, right? But yeah, I mean, it, it does give a little bit of insight into what the, what the target is and what, you know, Kevin Kelly thinks his target goal is to get to that runoff, right? And what he thinks is going to help him, which obviously he said this GPAC and the Frank Jackson endorsement. Can I jump in here? <laughs> Layla Tassi. So Kevin Kelly has put out statements ripping Justin Bibb for screwing up his ethics disclosures. And he's <laughs> he's argued that if you can't fill those out correctly, you shouldn't be mayor. Well, I just think if you don't have the presence of mind to not hit reply all, you probably shouldn't be mayor either. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it was a stunning email to, to see him saying, hey, hey, what more can we do with this? And and it's this cold calculation of I need 18 percent of the black vote. So, what, how you know, I, I think I'm there. Yeah. I got GPAC. I got Jackson. It, you know, I just it, that was one it, where it. I, I, I and I agree with you, Layla. He, he did. He came when we reported on our own. People thought that that was that was a big feed to Seth. But we reported on our own the that Justin Bibb screwed up some of his disclosures, leaving out his employers, even though there wasn't a secret about who his employers were. And we got a press release from Kevin Kelly saying exactly what you said. I wonder if we'll see him send out a note today saying, yeah, if you can't really avoid replying to all when you don't intend to, you shouldn't be mayor either. I don't know. You know, on another note, I wanted to ask Seth to talk about this. So yesterday, while Seth was putting this story together, we were discussing kind of connecting the dots between, you know, all the players and the dark money groups and things like that. And Tony George, you know, just because Seth mentioned him in this conversation, Seth, talk, if you wouldn't mind, talk about how you eventually arrived at kind of drawing that all together. And and there were so many pieces of evidence that pointed to Tony George as, as the driving force behind that particular pack. 
And then last night there was sort of like the missing piece of the puzzle with that tweet from scene. Would you mind talking about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the way that you kind of have to tie the, the actors to the candidates and whatnot, right, is you have to go with just whatever sort of public filings that you do have, which are minimal, but they do sort of, you know, point you in the right direction. Now, when I first saw the mailer, it arrived in, you know, my mailbox and some of my colleagues' mailboxes. I kind of had an idea of who was behind it, right? It, um, there, there's just some pretty key markers markers there that sort of stood out um, just based on campaign finance stuff. But if you go look at Secretary of State filings, you can see the uh, the organization, the articles of organization for this group. It's Citizens for a Better Cleveland. And you see that the the registering agent is uh, a property manager for Tony George. So then you can, you know, you can kind of tie it that way. And that doesn't always work out perfectly or anything because, you know, a lot of times people will just use, um, you know, some attorney as the uh, filing agent or something like that. But, you know, in some cases, you you know, when you are dealing with these sorts of organizations, you can go take a look that way and kind of figure out where the money is coming from. That doesn't necessarily mean all of the money is, you know, coming from Tony George or anything. But yeah, obviously the sweet, the scene tweet kind of, um, you know, pointed all that out and uh, uh, really kind of confirmed everything. But that's that's really the difficulty of dealing with these groups in, <clears throat> excuse me, in real time is, right. you know, you, you, you can make some assumptions about it and, you know, you hear whispers and you know, you know, you know, certain things from talking with people, but in terms of like tangible proof, um, you know, and it's by yeah. design, right. You, you can't always necessarily, um, you know, link that all together in a way well, that is. Let publishable. me interrupt you, Seth, because the, What's been interesting to me is Citizens for Change has been calling around town trying to get money, but no one is going on the record with who's making the calls because everybody's nervous about calling them out. So we can't report who's behind that as much as we'd like to. We will, you know, come January, we should have some idea, but I, uh, but it is, you're right. It's a, it's a huge challenge. Got to move on. You're listening to this week in the CLE just saw that President Joe Biden is signing an executive order today mandating that all federal employees get the vaccine. Armin Budish, are you listening? <laughs> Let's move on. Things took an unusual turn before testimony ended in the trial of former Cuyahoga County Jail Director Ken Mills Wednesday. Lisa Garvin, what happened? Oy, uh, the Assistant Attorney General, Linda Powers, was apparently taking a lunchtime stroll outside and got hit by a pickup truck at the corner of Ontario and St. Clair. She was taken to the hospital by ambulance. I have not read an update on her condition. Do we know what if she's okay? I mean, I, have we gotten an update on that? I don't think we've heard any more. Okay. And yeah, apparently- I don't know that we know yet, but- and apparently some of the jurors saw it, I, but that, I don't know if they realized who it was. I know the judge in the case did question all the jurors about the accident, what they saw and who they thought it was. But the trial ended up uh, moving on later in the afternoon after they did all the questioning. So it didn't affect it. And then, of course, the defense rest yesterday. So closing arguments are starting this morning in the trial of Ken Mills. Um Interesting that he did not take the stand in his own defense and only had two witnesses uh, that testified in his behalf. Um, and they told a quite a different story than the parade of witnesses who kind of painted a pretty nasty picture of what went on in the Cuyahoga County Jail under Mills' leadership. The, the question on this case from the start for me was always, is incompetence 
is this incompetence so great that it becomes criminal? You, you can say that Ken Mills did a bad job managing the jail, a really bad job. It, the conditions got bad and people died. But but does incompetence rise to the level of felony they're trying to argue? He's also accused of lying to the county council. And, you know, Layla, you've covered Cleveland City Hall. I covered Cleveland City Hall. If lying to a council was a crime, man, the jails would be filled. <laughs> <laughs> so I just don't I don't see it. I, it'll be fascinating to see how the jurors go on this. I have no prediction. I could see him being convicted. I can see him not being convicted. I, I do think it's interesting, Lisa, that he didn't take the stand. His attorneys obviously believe the case has not been proven and they're going to just get up and say the case isn't proven. So why put him on the stand to defend himself? Jurors aren't supposed to take that into consideration, but I always think that they do. But what I saw during the testimony, they painted a pretty clear picture of how he went around people. I mean, he went around the sheriff. He went around the budget director. I mean, he basically just did an end run around all of them straight to, you know, bootish. To me, that's malfeasance on a pretty high level. But they didn't call bootish to testify. Yeah. that so after they raided his office. Yeah, I think in the closing arguments today, they're going to say he was doing what his boss wanted him to do. He didn't go around anybody. He had the authorization of the county executive. And I think they'll probably point out you didn't hear from the county executive. They didn't call him to talk about it. And I don't know. It, we'll, we'll have to see. It's been a very it's the trial has had all sorts of revelations when we found out Budish's chief of staff signed Wait, an agreement. Can I jump to avoid- in? Being Sorry. criminally charged. Go ahead, Leila Tassi. The defense could have called Budish if that's key to proving their case. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, they are allowed to call witnesses, too. So they can't just get up there and say in closing, uh, well, you know, the prosecutors didn't call Budish, so we don't know what he would have said. Come no, on. But, but but the defense attorneys don't have to do that. The prosecutors no, they don't, have to but, prove their case. But, but if, if I'm a juror listening to that case, kind of argument, that, that doesn't hold water. You can't you can't tell me like, well, we, we don't know what that witness would have said. Come on, call him then. Call him if you think that he's going to prove the case. So I, I, but it's not the onus. Look, you covered courts. You know. know the onus is not on the defense to prove the innocence. It's on the prosecution to prove the guilt. And if the attorneys don't believe they've done it, they're not going to add, you know, you don't ask questions you don't know the answers to, right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. <laughs> How many ways was Maxton Soviak honored Wednesday as he returned home to Ohio after he was killed by a terrorist bomb in Afghanistan during the U.S. evacuation? Leila Tassi, a lot of people turned out to honor him. They did. It's in Soviak's hometown, Berlin Heights. Thousands of people lined the streets with flags and signs to honor him as his funeral procession worked its way through town. There were hundreds of Patriot Guard motorcyclists and law enforcement from Berlin Heights and Milan and Huron and Norwalk and other neighboring towns. And Soviak posthumously was honored with a promotion to the rank of hospital corpsman third class. He and the other 12 service members who died during that attack at the Kabul airport were awarded the Purple Heart. And Soviak was awarded the Fleet Marine Force Corpsman Warfare Badge. Members of the Navy Ceremonial Guard dressed all in white came from the Navy Operational Support Center in Akron to be a part of the event Wednesday. American Legion members and law enforcement stood at attention. And, um, you know, as the Navy Ceremonial Guard carried Soviak's casket up the steps of the funeral home, which is, you know, 
located heartbreakingly across the street from his boyhood home. So, you know, the photos of, that Josh Gunter took of the day are so moving. Soviak was, you know, he was only 22 years old and, and the community really showed up to honor their fallen son. What a sad, sad day. And yeah, actually, it was, it was, go ahead. Lisa Garvin. No, I was just going to say no, that the, the, uh, his funeral was picked up both by NBC News and the Associated Press, so it got a lot of coverage. Oh, one, of the, really? one of his fellow soldiers who had a funeral procession, and I, I'm sorry, I can't recall the name or, or the city where he was. There was another funeral procession for another one of the victims uh, that same day. Mm. But yes, it got a lot of coverage. Um, you know, beautiful pictures, like you said, Layla, just watching this, you know, case unrolling, you know, between these people at attention. It was really quite a moving scene and this is kind of a weird aside but that picture that they show of him in his you know in his navy blues and his hat he looks like Channing Tatum to me he was a very handsome engaging looking young man and the world is 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 a little worse off without him I hate to say but yeah it was it was nice to see that he got national attention okay you're listening to this week in the CLE what do the latest campaign finance reports in the Cleveland mayor's race tell us? Seth Richardson, we saved this topic all week to have you here to give us the insight. So lay it on us. Well, the thing I found the most fascinating about these, uh, the, you know, the final campaign finance reports we're going to get before the primary is uh, just how much Trump money is backing Dennis Kucinich, right? And it, I guess it's not that much of a surprise, but it, you know, the, the amount certainly was right. Uh, so, you know, Tony George, who we talked about earlier and James Kasuf, who, uh, um, you know, was pardoned by Donald Trump before Trump left office, you know, gave 65,000, you know, them and their family members gave $65,000 to Kucinich from July through August. Um, and Kucinich actually really bolstered his fundraising this time around. He's never really been a prolific fundraiser by any stretch. He raised $235,000 in contributions this time. Now, 65000 of that came from just George and Kasuf, but uh, that's that's still a pretty healthy number. Um, I, I just I find it fascinating that you know Dennis Kucinich, who you know for the longest time was seen as the you know the um, er progressive of cer- sorts, right? The uh, you know Bernie before Bernie or whatever you want to call it is uh, is really getting all of this Republican money. That is curious the, to me too, Seth. I, I, I wonder what the end game is. What what do they want from Kucinich? You know, that I, I don't know. I, I, I could speculate, but I would be just purely speculating. Um, you That's know, why we, you're here. Yeah, I want guess. your speculation. Well, you know, we, we asked uh, we asked Dennis on the uh, uh, the long form interviews we did about his relationship with Tony George, who, you know, gave you know tons of money to Donald Trump and to Republicans, right, to the, all over the state. Mary Taylor, Larry Householder, he's given all kinds of Republican money. And, you know, he kind of explained it away as um, – you know, I've, I have a long relationship with this guy, you know, but some of the I can't help but think of the, you know, the, the, the first energy connections and some of the uh, power disputes that have gone on at City Hall over the years. Uh, because one other uh, donation that I actually found that was pretty interesting in those reports was a donation from a company. Well, the president of a company called TPI Efficiency. And that name probably doesn't ring too much of a bell, but if you go back and remember, Tony George was trying to get a a, a power contract in with city council um, through T, like for TPI Efficiency, and when that didn't happen, you know, 
kind of immediately after that, he launched a campaign to reduce council size from, I believe it was from 17 to nine, basically cut it in half. And there have been, you know, questions over whether that was sort of a punitive thing that he was doing because he didn't get the contract and whatnot. You know, plus we have the, uh, you know, the investigations that are going on, you know, with city council looking into this stuff. So it, it does make me wonder. Um, but, but again, you know, back to the questions, you know, the, the thing we talked about with dark money, right. You're just, you know, you have dots to connect. You don't necessarily have a picture that you can fill in yet, but, um, I, I do find it very interesting. Uh, and as far as Kasuf goes, I, I, I do not know why, uh, he's been so heavily backing, uh, Kucinich. But I mean, again, when, when, when we're talking about the total amount that Kucinich has raised, about $324,000, 35% of that has come from the Kasufs and the Georges, 113000 total of all the money he's raised in this race. And that's that's a lot of money to we, come from basically two sources. We should point out that while Kevin Kelly didn't, didn't raise as much during the most recent period, there's a lot of spending on his behalf through a Citizens for Change dark money that that would if you combine them would make him the king of fundraising you're listening to this week in the cle i want to do one more democrat nan whaley has been trying to tar ohio governor mike dewine with the first energy corruption stink as she seeks to unseat him next year but does she have some explaining to do about corruption herself seth richardson she wasn't charged with anything but some of the information in a federal court file is disturbing yeah, the uh, the FBI, you know, looked into if, you know, Nan Whaley accepted bribes from a contractor in Dayton, you know, right around the time she was elected mayor in 2013. And, you know, they didn't file any charges, which kind of does seem to point to them not necessarily finding anything or at least not enough to, you know, maybe charge her with anything. And she's categorically denied it. I would you know, be very clear about that. She's come out and said, hey, I'm glad they investigated because that's what they're supposed to do. But it does put her into a really kind of precarious position as far as her campaign goes because her campaign has been so corrupt you know anti-corruption oriented yeah. especially focusing on this house bill six stuff but hold on because this wasn't just some anonymous allegation the feds were listening with wiretaps to people and one of them said i've been paying bribes to nan whaley yes, right i mean yes. that's I mean, that that's not your normal specious allegation. Yes, they're, true. They're up and listening and they hear somebody say, I pay bribes to Nan Whaley. That's a pretty, pretty dramatic thing. Either either that guy's making it up because he knows they're listening or something weird is going on there. And the fact that they closed the case without charging her, you're right. It could be because it's not true that she, that she's clean as a whistle. It could be that they just couldn't get the evidence to prove it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, to go back to what you said, this contractor said that he gave her $50,000 in cash and um, could get the money going in other ways and whatnot. Um, yeah, no, there, there's there's plenty that needs to be explained. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't want to make it seem like, no, there's no explaining that needs to be done. And it's something that she's probably going to have to answer to. I mean, she's going to have to answer to, uh, you know, voters, the public, and probably to some donors as well, right? Because when this story hit, um, you know, we we kind of were like, whoa, that that's sort of out of left field just because, like, again, just because of how much the Whaley campaign and the Democrats kind of writ large have really hammered this anti-corruption stuff. So, and and I do we, think, yeah, go we've ahead. got to get the case file. We got, I mean, it's a closed investigation, right? So, you know, we we got to try to get the backup information on what happened. Did, did they go interview this person? 
and did he recant or or what? But I that that she's she's running for governor. This is a red flag yeah. that needs to be explored. So we'll have to have to see where it goes. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Sorry we went long, but the conversation was just too robust to keep it short. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Friday to wrap up the week of news.